0: Today on the ZabeCast, a double guest special: Andy Polin on the Skins going to five and two, and whether this is Zorn one all over again or something else. We've got best-selling author Jane Levy on the legend of Babe Ruth. All that plus the Browns cash out Hugh Jackson, and Twitter is getting rid of the like button. Your essential sports talk day starter is locked and loaded, so buckle up and let's go. <laughs> Here we go. Tuesday, October 30th, 2018. Thank you for downloading Big Show today, so let's not waste any time. Hugh Jackson is out in Cleveland. What took so long? Hugh Jackson had a 0, excuse me, a .088 winning percentage with the Browns. It's the lowest of any winning percentage by a coach with 40 or more games on a single team, and it just brings me to one of my favorite sound bites. Favorite because it was just well, it just is. It's one of my favorite. And, and now, now, when I play this sound bite, I always kind of cringe internally because we live in such a super sensitized racial age, and it's just meant to be funny. It was from Kirby Enthusiasm. In which Larry David, in a particular episode, had a an IT guy that ran his household devices, TVs and whatnot, who happened to be black. And the devices weren't working properly. He didn't like it. And so he ended up firing the guy. And Wanda Sykes, also black, <laughs> calls him out on it. And it just is funny that, you know, here. You, whenever we have a coach who's black who gets fired, I play this. I take no glee in black coaches getting fired or white coaches getting fired. I mean, you, every coach in sport is hired with the express, express purpose to be fired eventually. Eh, yeah, in theory, to win a championship. But let's be honest. Most of the 99% of them won't. So you hire them because, you know, someday you're going to fire them. And then you're going to be able to go, well, see, we fired the coach. We did something. I know we've been sucking, but we fired the coach. So without further ado... Well, because I fired him, that's why. You fired him? He? You fired him? Why, why you fired a black man? I fired the black man
1: <laughs> because he's the guy who set up the whole system here, and it
2: doesn't work. And he's here like... Every and week I'm honestly, giving them checks. Wanda, we've got five true. remotes. I can't we've turn had it on.
0: So many problems. But I
2: know, them. you know, black man, can never do anything wrong. Really, I need to Wanda, get fired from a job. Black people and... always do everything right.
1: You got
0: to turn the damn satellite
1: on for the TV to work. See the little green light?
0: Just got to turn it on. <laughs> or you can fire the black man. Whatever works for you. Uh, what's weird is that you had huge you had you had two two assholes let's be honest although greg williams is the lesser of the two assholes i believe hard ass but he's the lesser of the two you had basically you, you had an internal power struggle where greg gaga was feuding with um you know uh todd what's his name the offensive coach i, I can't think with these head headsets on it bothers the shit out of me i'm choking more and more uh, as I try to think of these things, these, these glasses on, I can't think with glasses on. I can't read now with glasses on. Todd Haley, that's who it is. Okay. Man, just take a chill pill, Zabe. You have to remember everything on the first try here. Todd Haley and Greg g- 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 Williams got into a power struggle, and so I guess there was a, a, there was a power triangle. This all started, by the way, with hard knocks. Everyone saw this coming in hard ox, uh, on Hard Knocks from miles and miles away. And both the assistants seem to have little regard for the head man himself, Hugh Jackson. But it goes back to the owner. I mean, this is what shitty ownership does. They hold on to coaches for bad reasons that only they understand. And Haslam did. For You would think that going 0-16 and 1-15 and and would be enough to go, you know what, you're out. We got a new quarterback coming in. We got a new regime. We're going to start over. But no, they kept Hugh Jackson. And people are joking on Twitter. There's so many things coming out now. I got a lot, a lot of good stats here. A lot of good angles to this. People are saying it kind of sucks they fired him during his best season (laughs) because he's got two wins and a tie. So yeah. The Browns are plus 11 in turnover margin with a 2-5-1 record through eight weeks. Did you know, Warren Sharp at Sharp Football tweets, since 2006, that's 12 years of data, 38 teams were plus 8 or better through eight weeks. None of them had a losing record at all. Not even one game under. The Browns are 2-5-1 with a turnover margin of plus 8. Since 1975, 71 teams with a plus-11 turnover margin, or better, through eight weeks, none had a losing record, except the the 2018 Browns. I can't talk either today. Okay. That's pretty bad. Someone else tweeted, so far this season, the Cleveland Browns have gotten rid of their starting kicker their starting wide receiver, their starting running back, an NFL referee, their head coach, and their offensive coordinator. Pretty funny. PFT commenter had this first. Adam Schefter retweeted it. As PFT commenter pointed out ahead of the curve last week, this now marks the sixth straight Browns head coach that has been fired after the second game of the season against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Wow. That can't be real, but apparently it is. Trey Wingo said, so let's see, Cleveland has now fired a Hugh and a Lou. If there's a coach in town named Stu, I'd be nervous if I were you. (laughs) Schefter also filled in that Hugh Jackson had this and next year remaining on his contract, so the Browns will be contractually obligated to him through the 2019 season, but Cleveland is now, of course, back in the head coaching market. On a somewhat related Browns note, I don't understand where this one comes from. Maybe he believes it. Maybe not. Mike Greenberg of the very popular morning show Get Up on ESPN says Baker Mayfield's agent should demand a trade.
2: What the hell did
0: you just say? That kid is some magic, and they're going to ruin him. For the good of the sport, the hashtag Browns should let him go. What? What? what, what? Greeny, you've been in sports broadcasting your whole career. Where'd you get that take? Like, did you buy a bag of discount takes, 10 for a dollar, off of some card table in New York City? Like, are you serious you should demand a trade? Because that, I mean, it's not going to happen. So, really, I, okay. Get up! Couple couple other news items before we get to our guest today. Great news. We've recovered the stolen colon. And by we, I mean the police and the authorities in Kansas City. The giant, inflatable, pilfered intestine that once was at a local hospital, a 10-foot-long, $4,000 inflatable colon, has been found. No no one is in custody yet. Investigation is continuing. If you want to follow more on this story, just search for hashtag stolen colon on Twitter. I I kid you not, that's a hashtag. Hashtag stolen colon. And we got Halloween tomorrow, tomorrow. And people are pointing out that the goat of Halloween candy, Reese's, is not complacent in being the best. They are now throwing down candy converters. These are candy machines that collects other candy brands and spits out a Reese's of some flavor. I have not seen these in action. I've just seen a picture of them, which looks like a giant candy machine with a slot in the top where you put your candy or, I guess, rocks or mulch or whatever. Who knows what device can actually scan what you're putting in there. And it spits out a plunk. Fresh Reese's Bar. Elliot, uh, at Dirty Guns 8 on Twitter, Redskin Fan, says, A local D.C. brewery should make a new beer called the Front 3 IPA for Ionitis, Payne, and Allen. Oh, I like it. I like it. That'd be good. Front 3 IPA. He says, It's smooth, well-balanced, and extremely strong all right time for our usual tuesday visit andy poland hello hello andy how does it feel to be in first place yet again for another week (laughs) kings of the east right Uh, you know it doesn't suck i'm wondering if you feel like this is like the zorn year when they started out 6-2, and two, they were dominant running the ball, and they were dominant in turnovers, kind of like they are this year.
2: You know, at that time, I was doing the Monday morning quarterback show with Kevin Sheehan and John Riggins, and Sheehan was very excited. He thought this was really it. And Rigo and I <laughs> stood arm in arm and said, eh, not that good. And turned out they weren't. I mean, they were getting by on things like Zorn going for it on fourth and one to close out a game. They were running the ball really well. Portis was probably at his peak, and the offensive line stayed healthy. And it was and and it a, was
0: turnovers. It was the yeah. same thing. It was running in turnovers. But it, it's an efficient way to play. Can you sustain it for a full eighteen or sixteen games? Here's the thing, though. Zorn was a wackadoo who was in over his head. Jay yeah. Gruden is is not the most dynamic of coaches, but he's way better than Zorn. So I think oh, we got a, Yes, I think we got a fighting chance, we Andy. I think the Redskins have a fighting chance <laughs> to bring this home to a division title at nine or ten wins against the Eagles.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean I, I think the division is bad. The, the Giants, as we know, are horrible. The Cowboys are not very good. And uh, what I saw from the Eagles yesterday, they found a way to win that game, but they let Jacksonville hang around for quite a while. So yeah. uh, I don't know. I think, I think it's definitely a winnable division this year.
0: Is this the best defensive front we've had since Stubby and Wilkinson? Prior, <laughs> prior to them, Andy, don't laugh. Early on, Stubby and, and Wilkinson were, were good because they gave a shit. And then they quickly decided, okay, we've already been paid, so fuck everything. Right?
2: Yeah. Well, well, I mean, they both came here after. Well, Wilkinson was somewhat of a disappointment. He was the number one pick of the draft and really, you know, hadn't done all that much in Cincinnati and came here as a free agent. Uh, No, I'm sorry. They did trade for him. They traded for him. Yeah, they Um, traded
0: for him, so he wasn't a total bust. And Stubby was a a big free agent. Big free agent purchase from San Francisco where you had something like 11 sacks as a defensive tackle in his walk year, his free agency year.
2: I believe it was 15 sacks.
0: 15, okay.
2: Yeah, but he was playing next to Bryant Young, who was a stud. And that. And also I heard from Ray Ratto uh, that the 49ers knew what kind of a guy he was, and they knew that once he got paid, he'd be a fat, slovenly pig, which right. is what he was. Right. Yeah.
0: How about Daryl Gardner? The one year here, he was a fucking man on fire. And then they let him walk out the door. You and I are like, God, he was their best D-tackle we've had in forever. He goes to Denver. Next thing you know, he's assaulting somebody outside a Waffle House. And he was out of the league within a year. That was a yeah, good... He had, yeah,
2: he also had a bad back here. And they knew it was degenerative. Like, it was, he wasn't going to last anyway, physically. Yeah. So that was part of the reason they let him go. All
0: right, who else? I mean, you know, since Butts... And uh, who else? Grant. Butson Grant. What other great inside tandems have we had alongside this now trio? Because we're playing a 3 4 of Payne, Ionitis, and Allen.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think there have been many real standout guys. There have been guys who have been okay, just guys. But, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and the way they got Butts, they gave up two first-round draft picks to sign Butts when they didn't have free agency. That was a George Allen deal. Wow. And Darryl Grant Darryl Grant came to the Redskins as an offensive lineman. He was an offensive lineman his rookie year coming out of Rice, and then they converted him to a defensive tackle. But um, those guys, you know, they, they clogged the middle, and then Dexter and Mann would get all the sacks. Yeah. Uh, this is different. These guys are getting sacks. Iyanidis. I don't yeah. think I've ever seen anybody get a rush up the middle like that guy. He's, I mean, he's unbelievable.
0: He's throwing chumps out of the club, week yeah. in, week out. It it's fun, and and they are they are stuffing every top running back in the league week after week. I mean, they have nowhere to run. So, uh, this team has a chance this year to be interesting. I still think it's a it's a pillow fight to nine or ten wins with the Eagles. I think a, I think ten win win ten wins takes the division outright. I think nine is a tiebreaker between us and them. I don't think the Cowboys will be a factor. You?
2: Yeah, I I don't think they will be unless you know. Here's here's the thing that that I've, I've been saying this to a couple of weeks now. They've been healthy. Now the fact that they were able to play without a starting corner and did a decent job. You know, Stroman, I don't know what they were doing early in the game with with letting Stroman cover Beckham. But with, with a key loss on defense, they came through. But if they get a couple more injuries, let's see what happens. But they've remained pretty healthy on defense.
0: Yeah, now offensively, they're banged up. And, of course, everything rides on Peterson. Would you say there is a parallel between Peterson's amazing late career surge and not John Riggins but Terry Allen?
2: Yeah, Terry Allen was was a very interesting pickup. They got him from Minnesota. I don't know whether he's a free agent or they traded for him, but he had had surgery on both knees. He tore the ACL in both knees.
0: Yeah, he was shot, basically.
2: yeah, and he had he had two thousand yard seasons for them. He was he was a very good back, um, and yeah, there might be some of that. Although he was much younger, I mean Peterson coming here at thirty three. I bet they got Terry Allen at like 27, 28 at most. Correct. You know?
0: Terry Allen was here twenty seven, age 27, 28, 29, and thirty, and it yeah. was his. Uh, uh, he had thirteen hundred yards back to back, not just a yeah. thousand, Andy. Thirteen hundred yards, and this looks like a misprint. Is this possible? In 1996, Terry Allen for the Redskins had 21 touchdowns?
2: Yeah, receiving and rushing, I would think that's possible. Yeah, nor used to like to throw to the backs. I, I, I can see that.
0: No, no, this is 21 rushing touchdowns. Really? Yes, wow. I'm looking at it right now. Profootballreference.com. They're rarely wrong. Holy shit, that's a lot of touchdowns. <laughs>
2: That's that's a good year cuz Riggins set the record at like 24 before Emmett broke it. So wow, that's amazing.
0: Yeah. So anyway, Ooh. it's uh, it's fun to have a team that doesn't suck. It's fun to have no, a team it's, it's, that doesn't throw games away in horrible circumstances, right?
2: Well, know that but but after so many years of just terrible defense The strength of this team is suddenly the defense, and the defense looks to be one of the better defenses in the league. Now, it seems to be killing Jay. I watch the press conferences every week on uh, NBC Sports Washington after the games are over. He he looks sick to his stomach after three straight wins.
0: Oh, really? Because he's not able to pass the ball? Is this Spurrier 2.0?
2: well yeah maybe or, or you know or maybe there's some chatter behind the scenes like you know hey jay we don't really need you and your high-powered offense we're just gonna you know we're just gonna give the job to minoski next year and you know we'll save a lot of money i don't know I, don't, I have no idea what it is but i just don't sense a lot of joy coming out of him in these <laughs> news conferences
0: he is uh currently at 54 percent passing in terms of the run pass split in in around the league and that's bottom 10, I believe. It's like in the low 20s. Yeah. And so it's very unlike him. And like Spurrier, he loves to pass. Maybe he's looking a bit glum, and this could be a theory, that he sees Alex Smith and realizes, oh, shit. We got taken again by Andy Reid, and Andy Reid's used cars sales lot. Maybe? Yeah,
2: could be. Possibly? Could be. Well, I'm knowing Also knowing... That he's got to adjust his great game plan, schemed-up offense for the next three years to a guy whose greatest strength is he doesn't throw interceptions. And And But but
0: he threw three balls in peril yesterday.
2: Three balls that
0: were very close to being picked off, so... You're right, he has not thrown interceptions so far, but he's not making good throws. Even easy throws, there was an overthrow of Jordan Reed that would have led to a first down late in that game. Missed mm-hmm. him by a mile.
2: Okay, but how many, I bet you could look this up, how many quarterbacks have played every snap of seven games this year and have only two interceptions?
0: how well, many. I, okay, uh, let me see, 2018 NFL stats, uh, in the meantime, Andy, uh, Rating, co-
2: Maybe,
0: uh, possibly so. Yeah. Passing leaders would be the number there. Uh, in in the meantime, uh, what else is there about the Redskins? Oh, yeah, the Eli front. I want you to back me up or just correct me on this, if you will. I got okay. into it on Twitter with a, a giant fan about how I said the New York media overreacted ridiculously when Eli got benched last year at 2-9 and nine, when the season was a goner and Ben McAdoo wanted to see another quarterback, and he put Geno Smith in there. And the New York City media reacted like some great injustice to football royalty had been done and that this this coach is an idiot who had to go, never mind the fact that he had won 11 games the year before, and then a boat right. trip happened with Odell Beckham Jr. They decided, basically the media, we're going to blame it on McAdoo because he looks stupid, and we love Eli <laughs> and he's great. And so that led management up there, to once again double down and back Eli fully in the offseason and not go after another quarterback. I think the New York media has that kind of sway. Do you think they do?
2: I think some of that was it was Geno Smith, who they'd already seen in the same with the city. Jets. With right. the Jets, Yeah. So some, some of that was that. There was also, remember this, um, that Tiki Barber, as soon as he got his job on TV, started taking off on Eli and Eli then went out and won two Super Bowls. So I think there's you know, that that he'd been criticized in the past and he kind of showed them. Um, so I think those, those things added up. Uh, I think the New York media people like to think they have more sway. I know Mike and the Mad Dog like to take credit for the Mets trading for Piazza, but right. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that necessarily happened. I, I, think, I think a lot of it was the fact that it was Geno Smith. If it was another quarterback It might have been different.
0: Alex Smith has two interceptions against just eight touchdowns. Other That's quarter, true. other quarterbacks who have uh that few of interceptions, you're not gonna like this, Andy. Not gonna like this at all. You ready?
2: Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: I'm gonna just read the twos and the ones of the quarterbacks in the league that are playing full time. Nobody nobody has zero interceptions. I'll leave it at that. Okay. But there's some twos and there's some ones. Here we go. Uh, 15 over 2 Matt Ryan mm-hmm. at 71% completions, 7% better than Alex Smith at 63% and a okay. lot better in terms of yardage to boot we will see him on Sunday also with just 2 interceptions so far this year uh, 13 touchdowns, 2 interceptions Carson Wentz, Philadelphia uh-huh. Eagles, 70
2: 70- hasn't played every game though, missed the first 2 games
0: but he's 13 over 2 I understand. And Alex yeah. is 8 over 2.
2: I know, but 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 the Alex, right now, the narrative on Alex is he doesn't screw it up. He won't lose the game for you. And if the defense is playing like the 2,000 Ravens, then, you know, you've got a situation like that with Trent Dilfer. Right. I mean, that's that's really what, what you're looking at now. I, I mean, Eric? I don't think they're the 2,000 Ravens, but Ray Lewis used to come over all the time. Just give us 7. Just give, us give us 7. seven That'll, be That'll be enough. That'll be enough. Yeah. No.
0: Uh, 13 over 1 is Aaron Rodgers. Oh, wow. Aaron Rodgers is only at, this is hard to believe, 61% completions. Wow, that's a low yeah. number. 13, of course he
2: doesn't have the seven interceptions that Francesa said he had?
0: I'm no, surprised. No. Uh, by the way, there's more Francesa bites. He's gone, Francesca's gone full Captain Quig. You know that. I
2: know, like, yeah. Full they have I been mean, reading the. the yeah, crazy. Yeah.
0: Uh, all right, so so Rogers, who's on one leg, is still thirteen over one. Yeah. And Drew, did I tell you Drew Brees was fourteen over one? Yeah. Fourteen. Drew okay. Brees. Drew Brees is fourteen over one at seventy-seven percent.
2: Yeah, well, you know, and with the modern passing rules, you should have low interception totals. So maybe I should reverse my feel on this. You know, but what are you going to do? do You know, what's what's your solution?
0: (laughs) Don't don't you throw that on me, Ricky Bobby? Don't you throw that evil on me, Ricky Bobby? I hate it when you do that.
2: You can't play Colt McCoy because you're winning.
0: I don't want Colt McCoy, Andy. I took a Colt McCoy call today on the show. Yeah, of course you did. Of course you did. (laughs) <laughs> All right. How about how about quarterbacks with fewer than double-digit touchdowns at this point, meaning nine or fewer? There's only two in the top 23. One is Alex with eight. The other one is Eli Manning.
2: Wow! Ouch! Oh, he looks terrible. And yeah, you know, I I, uh, I referenced this on Twitter yesterday. The first game of the 1973 season, and this was the first game that was ever televised locally. This is when they came up with the blackout rules. It was Johnny Unitas playing for the San Diego Chargers. And I think the final score was something like 35-3 to 3 for the Redskins, and he was terrible. And Eli reminded me a lot of the way Unitas looked. I mean, he just couldn't get out of his own way. Uh, that uh, I mean, even when you don't have a great offensive line, and I realize they may have the worst offensive line in the league, you find a way to get rid of the football. You well, just don't eat it as many times as he did.
0: Not only that, but you have to look athletic. You have to not yeah. look meek and feeble, which is what Eli looks like right now. Meek, feeble, right. and scared, and that's just, you can't play quarterback in the league. Baker Mayfield has eight touchdowns. Dak Prescott has eight touchdowns. C.J. Beathard already has eight touchdowns, Andy, and he just started halfway through the year. Jameis yeah. Winston has six, and he you know, was suspended for three games. By the way, have you seen a worse performance than what Jameis Winston laid down on Sunday? In there was time? a, a-
2: a stat that that Trey Wingo put out today, and in something like forty three or forty four games, he's got seventy one turnovers. I mean, wow. it, it's it's unfathomable. I, I mean, mean it, you know, yeah. how,
0: counting fumbles, right? I didn't even count. He has yeah. fifty three interceptions in like forty seven games.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, as a you you, I mean, you got at some point you got to throw up your hands and say this this isn't going to work.
0: Might, you can't meanwhile. Do that. Meanwhile, Marcus Mariota, who has only played five, he's only made five starts in six games. He's missed a couple because of injury, nerve issue Mm -hmm. in his elbow. He's got three touchdowns over five ints. So it looks like the one-two punch of that draft four years ago is just turning up empty. Even though Mariota is a better citizen and a harder worker than Jameis, neither one is an impact quarterback.
2: Well, and also it's the case of if you're going to draft a guy number one and number two, you got to play him right away. And, I don't know, Aaron Rodgers might have been great right out of the box, but sitting for three years probably didn't hurt him much. Yeah.
0: All right, do we win against Atlanta before we move and turn the page?
2: Uh, you know, if if the defense turns up another performance, it's it's not just that they're – I, re- I realize that, I, that uh, Matt Ryan doesn't turn the ball over. But if the defense can continue to get turnovers, I mean, realize this, this is the third straight game that they've got more than one turnover in a game. That's, that's something they were never doing. I mean, they haven't done that going back you know, past Greg Williams. Yeah. So I, I think if they can get turnovers, yes, I think they can win the game. But they're, they're all going to be ugly like this. I mean, you, you cannot, no matter who the Redskins are playing, it seems to me, you can't count on, except for that crazy game against the Packers, you can't count on more than 21 points.
0: All right, you can. Here's an email from Andy in San Diego. wants me to run this by you. Zabe, how can you have Charlie Casserly on your show? I had him on Friday. This guy Mm -hmm. is one of the reasons the Redskins have failed for years. Look at his draft choices. Tracy Rocker, Bobby Wilson, Ricky Irvin, Shane Collins, Desmond Howard, Tom Carter, Reggie Brooks, Heath Schuler, Shane Collins, Corey Raymer, Michael Westbrook, Andre Johnson, Albert Connell, Stephen Davis, Skip Hicks, Stephen Alexander. Sorry, I had to go and throw up and cry. This guy was the start to why the team is so bad. People want to blame Snyder, but this a-hole was Snyder before Snyder. I get so angry when I hear him on any TV show or radio. He's a New York guy sent by the Giants to destroy the organization of me and your youth. Inside job, ranking on on Casterly. Scum, says Andy in San Diego.
2: Well, he's misguided there. Uh, Yes, Charlie's draft record at the top of the draft, not good. But you look what he did in the lower rounds. He did pretty well, except for drafting a punter named Ed Bunn in the third round who couldn't play.
0: Cinnamon (laughs) Bunn.
2: But... Uh, the thing he did was that he, he did pretty well, especially with undrafted free agents. He worked under Bobby Beathard and he did a lot of the scouting on guys like Joe Jacoby, who they brought in. And, uh, yeah, I mean, at the top of the draft is indefensible. Uh, he, he had too many busts at the top, but also remember when they said, you have to take Reggie Bush in Houston and he didn't, that didn't turn out to be the worst move either. No, you know, so... You know, he, he, uh, he says his hits and misses. I think he knows the game. I think he knows how to watch film, which is what he's doing now. He's watching. But he's what done, about yeah, this evaluate. whole he
0: was a plant from New York?
2: Oh, come on. Do you know his backstory.
0: Uh, he worked in the mailroom. He, he was a self-made guy, basically, right?
2: He, he was a high school football coach in New Jersey, and he liked it. And that could have been his career. But he said, you know what? I want more than that. So he was single. He quit his job. He sold all his furniture. He drove He sent out letters to all 28 teams. The only letter he got back was from George Allen, who said, yeah, come on in. I got something for you. He comes in. I'm ready to go to work, Mr. Allen. He said, that's great. He says, then how much are you going to be paid? Nothing. You're an intern. And so he lived at the YMCA. He lived in his car. And he worked his way up. And then second year, they started sending him out on some scouting missions. And uh, he became a scout, worked under uh, Bobby Bickham, Be- became the uh, general manager.
0: I give Charlie credit for these two things. he held firm on the uh, Gilbert trade. I uh, keep forgetting his first name. Sean word. Gilbert. Sean Gilbert. He yep. held firm. Carolina ended up coughing up two first-rounders to sign him as a franchise tag player, so that was good. We got mm-hmm. two first-rounders for a bag of shit. And then he engineered the trade with New Orleans and Ditka so they could move up to take Ricky Williams. We were only sitting fourth, fourth, and, and Ditka said, I'll give you my whole draft.
2: The yeah, Redskins and, got and seven,
0: seven picks, including two number ones and two number threes. In that
2: deal, yeah, and they got they got Champ Bailey by trading back up. He parlayed and, some of those
0: to get Champ. Yep. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and then he also was able to use some of those draft picks to send to Minnesota to get Brad Johnson, who that's another the one. title.
0: Yeah, yeah. Brad so, Johnson, pretty good quarterback, both for us and then won a Super Bowl for somebody else. So not too bad. Tampa. Yeah,
2: yeah,
0: okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Real quick, before my phone runs out and I forgot to charge it, Roger Goodell. <laughs> Call your office. It looks like Greg Williams, the guy that said, hit the head, affect the head, kill the head, and the body will die. He is back as an interim head coach in the National Football League. How about that?
2: Yeah, I also noticed a commercial during the game yesterday where Justin Strelzik, the fullback for the 49ers is talking about how the league helped them get this great helmet that's going to protect him. Okay. Yeah. So there's, there's that. And then Goodell bungled that uh, bounty gate thing so badly. Greg Williams was kicked out of the league for a year and the fines that he dumped on the players were rescinded by his special master, Paul Tagliabu, who said, no, 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 no. So yeah. the whole thing was just a complete sham, a complete joke, and he kicked out a coach for a well, – no, he banned him for life. Remember that? Sean Payton was only a one-year suspension. Williams got hit the hardest.
0: Are you sure somehow his life
2: – I, I, I thought it was a lifetime ban where he could apply for reinstatement. It was sort of what they wanted to do with Pete Rose. I know his was more uh, severe. Than he was Peyton. suspended
0: I, indefinitely.
2: Indefinitely, okay. So, but you uh, know what though, was,
0: he, he I give yeah. Williams credit. He he went low. He didn't say anything. Yep. He stayed he stayed low key, and he worked his way back in.
2: Well, I think he was told Goodell's a boob. He's got no legal leg to stand on. Just sit tight for a year. You're coming back.
0: Yeah, came back for the Rams as D coordinator. Was a senior huh. assistant coach with the Titans. Uh, then to the Browns, and now he's head coach. How about the fact that they finally fired Hugh Jackson? In yeah, but here's Cleveland?
2: Here's what I didn't get. Apparently, it was it was a, a, an argument with the or a disagreement with the offensive coordinator. The guy who used to be Todd in uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah, Todd Haley, and they fired him too. It <laughs> seems like that was a one or the other situation, wasn't it?
0: <laughs> I don't get it, man. It's the Browns. The Browns yeah. are always going to be the Browns. All right, Andy. It's great to be in first place, and uh, we'll see where Bryce Harper goes. Give me a quick thought on where Bryce Harper ends up.
2: Um, I wouldn't be shocked now if he comes back here. Um, what? Where's, where's he? Gonna, yeah, I mean, are, is he? Is, are the Dodgers going to have him? I think the Dodgers are going to keep Machado. That's what I think. So I don't think they can have both of them. Would he go to Chicago with the Cubs? Maybe, but I'm told that that's not really a possibility i mean where are the big money teams that are going to go after him if Who he stays
0: they? if he stays here what is the number that's a win for you in terms of his contract under uh, under under 300 million is that a win
2: oh that's a real win. i don't think that's possible because the bar the bar right now is 325 right yeah stanton is 325 yeah, yeah. so they got to get over that i mean it's got it's got to look good for boris but 330 you know, look, 330
0: look at, over 10 maybe
2: I just, I just look at with the deal that Strasburg signed, a deal that they said would never happen with Boris as his agent. So I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility this is, in today's dollars, a reasonable deal for him. All right.
0: All right, we shall see. Andy, always good to talk to you, my friend. We'll chat next week. You too. From Andy to baseball, there are certain figures in sports that have produced mountains of historical research and movies, books, biopics, etc. Guys like Vince Lombardi, Jim Brown, Will Chamberlain, Bobby Jones, and, of course, Babe Ruth. All right, joining us now on the phone, New York Times bestselling author Jane Levy, whose latest book is out titled The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. Jane, thank you for joining us. How are you?
1: I'm good, Steve. How are you?
0: Good. World Series just finished, so this is very timely with Boston winning their fourth title now in a span of about 14 years. This book is being talked about as the definitive work on maybe the start of modern pro sports mega-celebrity in Babe Ruth. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Absolutely, and and, and that's really good because that's what I wanted people to conclude. Babe Ruth was a unique talent, as we all know, who um, is unquestionably the best player whoever played the game, in part because he did two things exceptionally well and better than pretty much anybody ever. He pitched um, the, the Boston Red Sox to the World Series in, in 1918 with two victories and that long, scoreless streak that ended at 29-plus innings, and he also reinvented the game by creating Power Baseball. Uh, You know, Mike Rizzo, the uh, general manager of the Nats, said to me he was the original original. He, uh, He just refused to play the game within the box that it had been created, redefined it, made it his own.
0: There had to be other big kids, Jane, that grew up and played baseball or dabbled in it that decided, you know, I like to hit the ball a long way. Why was Ruth, even at an early age, So easily noticeable as, holy cow, this kid can hit the ball a country mile.
1: Well, I think he surprised everybody because he came out of this institutional setting that actually kind of worked as a, a feeding ground to minor league baseball. It was the St. Mary's Industrial School at the west western cusp of the city of Baltimore, and so he surprised people, including uh, the the Jack Dunn, the guy who signed him for the Baltimore Orioles as a pitcher. Nobody knew he could hit the way he hit, and. He dwarfed, he literally dwarfed everybody else on the field. They looked like little leaguers compared to him. Now, he wasn't the, the Babe Ruth of caricature in, in 1914 when he arrived at the Baltimore Oil Spring Training Camp. He was probably, uh, about 175, 180 pounds, six foot, one and a half. It was a long, tall drink of water. He didn't become that caricature until way later, at least you know, mid tw- mid to late twenties.
0: Was the school really called the Saint Mary's Industrial School for the orphaned, delinquent, and incorrigible and wayward boys?
1: Yes, it was.
0: That and, was the, the official title of the school.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they and the thing about it was the title of it. And they did really good work. They took in and took care of lots of boys like Babe Ruth. But the fact that they took in orphans persuaded a lot of people, oh, well, Babe Ruth must have been an orphan. No, he wasn't an orphan, and he would be at pains to tell uh, reporters, no, I had parents, but then he never elaborated on it. Other people concluded, uh, based on a Westbrook Pegler early um, serialized autobiography, that he was one of those incorrigibles who was sent there by the courts because he had been such a bad kid running amok on the Baltimore waterfront. That, too, is not true. Uh, Westbrook Pickler didn't admit as much until for another 25 years What he said, you know, I never got to sit down and talk to babe. He wrote the damn thing sitting in a, an apartment in Manhattan over a weekend. So people concluded two very different and two irreconcilably erroneous things about him, and his childhood was actually so much worse that um, – Than than any of us knew, and then that he wanted
0: anybody to know. I'd love to know how they decided, Jane, if you were a delinquent, incorrigible, or just wayward. Wonder what uh, the 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 categories there. Hmm, you're just wayward. You're not incorrigible, and put him in the bins. So he 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 ends up getting into major league baseball system, and he ends up, of course getting to the big leagues, and starting to hit home runs at a prodigious rate. He was single-handedly hitting more home runs than entire teams were. When did he then kick it into gear as becoming larger than the game itself and to become the sport's first big celebrity?
1: Well, you know, in in 1918, when he pitched the Red Sox to – Uh, the the World Series uh, just as they've won 100 years later he was already starting to make that transition and uh, he was feeling his oats and by 1919 he was demanding from Harry Frazee the owner of the Red Sox excuse me um, you know ten thousand dollars a year for three years and Frazee didn't much like that and nor did he have that money uh, not for no, no, Nanette. By the way, that's another
0: miss, another miss, myth.
1: Another myth. Um, the amazing thing about the deal uh, that that sent Babe to New York is is this, and I, I don't even know how to begin to describe how much this would upset Red Sox fans if, if they were upset about anything. <laughs> Harry Harry Frazee um, paid Jacob Rupert um, more in interest. On the loan that that Rupert gave him for three hundred thousand dollars, then it cost Jacob Rupert to buy Babe Ruth from Harry Frazee. So in short, the Red Sox paid the Yankees to take him. And then he comes to New York and he arrives in January 1920, just as prohibition is kicking into gear And just as the back page um, of the sports section of New York Daily News, which was the nation's first tabloid, um, it becomes a feature of modern journalism as it was practiced then. And Rupert is smart. You know, he figures out, I'm not going to make any money on my my brewery for a while. I better figure out a way to make these Yankees um, profitable, which they had never been. So Babe immediately starts hitting home runs, filling the back page. He's called the Colossus, and I've I've listed 58 names that were created for him um, over the years wow. to try to capture, you know, uh, my, the Wazir and Wally of of uh, SWAT are two of my favorites.
0: <laughs> yeah, Sultan of SWAT, the Bambino. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the ones that come off the top of my head. What else was used to describe Babe Ruth?
1: Diamond-studded swatter, the swatting is swatter of swat. (laughs) And I found one yesterday uh, researching... his participation in the 1916 World Series as a pitcher, the Baltimore Blizzard.
0: Wow, that's a good one right there. So basically the the often told yet incorrect narrative about Babe Ruth going from the Red Sox to the Yankees was that Harry Frazee had sold him for 300 grand and the rights to No-No Nanette, the Broadway play. In fact, Frazee just got a loan at 7%, which ended up, costing them as much money as it would have just to keep Babe Ruth. Uh
1: actually and I'm I, I think I misled you, I apologize. Jake Rupert uh bought him for a hundred grand that was in four installments and the interest on that was six percent. He also he also loaned Frazee ah. a three hundred grand, which was at seven percent. So by six years uh, <laughs> after that deal was done, Frazee had paid more in interest than right. Rupert had paid him wow. for Babe Ruth.
0: So he's a big star now. He's in New York, and he goes on barnstorming tours in the off offseason with, uh, with, with Gehrig, and they have these incredible shows all over the country, and he's making a ton of money doing that, and he hooks up with what you describe as basically the first sports agent in history – Christy Walsh.
1: Yeah, he this this guy was the original Jerry Maguire. And he was when he, when he hooked on with Babe, which was in February 21, he was a an out of work ad man, PR man, failed newspaper cartoonist, failed newspaper man, and he was desperate. He was so desperate his nephew told me that the way he got into Beirut's apartment to make his pitch was he climbed up the um, the the fire escape on the on the hotel that Babe Ruth was staying in? Cracked open the window, found Babe in bed with a blonde, <laughs> slapped him on the butt, and said, "I want to represent you." So, <laughs> That's
0: bold, right there. Yeah, and-,
1: and and he was he was a visionary. This guy, he saw what nobody else saw, which was. That athletes were going to be marketed and, um, and, and paid as, celebra- as, as entertainers, not just as athletes, what they did on the field. They were going to be paid for putting tushies in seats and that they were people whose faces and mugs were going to be put on <laughs> mugs and shaving cream and boys' baseball caps and sweaters and he proceeded to use all the new mechanisms of promotion that were coming into the, the public sector in the 20s to promote Babe Ruth. Tele, tele, telegram, uh, telegram services that could send back more than your usual 10 syllables um, where you could actually send back copy. Uh, a telepix system of sending pictures overnight that debuted in Chicago, where I am right now, um, in uh, the beginning of 1925, so that you could send a picture of Beirut's mistress overnight from New York to Chicago or New York to Los Angeles, and most especially radio.
2: Wow.
0: Yeah, the, uh, the quote from Walsh that you have is amazing because he said he saw a new kind of stardom emerging, one that was grounded in personality, and amplified by images, wow! That's 1921, and he sees that coming. Well, you
1: know, there's a there's a picture in the book that's actually my favorite of Babe Ruth cradling a carrier pigeon in September 1921 at the Polo Grounds, where the only way you could update fans on the Upper East Side of Manhattan was to send a pigeon back and forth with <laughs> during a pennant uh, deciding series with the Cleveland Indians. Now, this happened to be just a month after the first major league game was broadcast from Pittsburgh on KDKA. But flash forward six years, the 1927 World Series where the Yankees sweep. The Pirates and Babe Ruth the only two home runs, is broadcast nationally, coast to coast, on two radio networks that are brand new, NBC and CBS.
0: Wow. And so from there, this incorrigible, wayward kid from the streets of Baltimore embraced and loved his celebrity, right? He never once shied away from what he became as he got huge, did he?
1: No, never. And the thing is, he wasn't that incorrigible. The the new stuff in the book that I was afraid I wouldn't find, but did, because it took eight and it, but it took eight years to do it, was that the reason he was sent to St. Mary's did not have to do with his behavior, but with the disintegration of his parents' marriage. And in fact, George Ruth Sr. had uh, caught his wife, Katie, in a compromising position with one of his bartenders who worked at George Ruth's saloon. Um, and he threw her out. He divorced her. It was public information in 1906. It was on, it was in the Baltimore Sun wow. in 1906. And the reason Bay Ruth got sent to St. Mary's for the first, remainder of his childhood was because his mother was banished from the family. She would die six years later of what the uh, death certificate called exhaustion and um, tuberculosis. And the father never visited him. So he was labeled bad. But he wasn't. Right. And every every once in a while he would protest and say, You know, the brothers didn't think I was such a bad kid. <laughs> but he never explained publicly, and why would he that his father had accused his mother of adultery and alcoholism, and that's why wow. he had been sent away.
0: He made a lot of money, he demanded a lot of money for the time, but he also, Jane, spent like crazy, and he drank, and he womanized like crazy. There was nothing that Babe Ruth did that was small, right?
1: He was the big fella, <laughs> and I would, and I would say that he spent a lifetime um, trying to fill up uh, a very empty space inside him. You know, the one thing he told his daughter Julia Ruth Stevens, who is still alive at age 102 about being at St. Mary's was that he never felt full. And that was both a statement of actual hunger since the brothers only had six cents per meal per kid to feed those kids, um, each day. But it was also a hunger for the kind of love that he didn't get for the family he didn't have. And so, yes, he supported himself, um, Financially, he made himself into the big fella, but he also spent the rest of his life trying to fill up that empty space with public love and approbation.
0: We'll end with this, and the book has incredible depth to it, and for eight years of toil, you should definitely pick it up and read it. It's called The Big Fellow, the Babe Ruth and the World He Created by Jane Levy. It's out in all your normal book places these days. I'll end with this, Jane. Could there be a new Babe Ruth today? And if not, why? And who's the closest one to it? I would guess LeBron James.
1: Um, I I would make the same guess. Um... You know, certainly the comparisons were Michael Jordan and now LeBron. I don't see anybody in baseball um, who comes close to that level of um, stardom and celebrity. Um, in fact, I looked at all the the lists of who makes what in endorsements. I think the highest person on the on the list of the top 100 was in baseball was number 41, which is which is shameful. Yeah, really. The babe the babe would be rolling over, but. You know, the thing about athletics is there's always somebody who's going to come along and push the barriers and do something that is completely unanticipated to reinvent the way the games we think we know are played. And by the way, Steve, just just may I add, I'm going to be talking at Politics and Prose on Sunday um, in Washington at uh, November 4th at 3 p.m. Please, everybody come. I'll tell all my great, all the stories I haven't told you.
0: Very good. Jane, best of luck with the book. Congratulations, and we thank you for your time.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. Be well.
0: We'll end with this today. In March of 2018, Twitter introduced a bookmarking function, as you may remember, which allowed users to privately save tweets without hitting the like button. It not only implies, a, the like button typically implies a positive attitude towards the content of the tweet, but it's also public. Speaking of which, I was growing increasingly at wit's end at seeing the liked tweets of some people I follow on my timeline who, I they're pretty good at not tweeting political stuff themselves. If, if the sports figures that I follow are going to tweet out political stuff or social commentary stuff, I'm going to quickly go goodbye because I want my Twitter feed to be a sports feed. Now you get likes being promoted, and you're like, why is this in my timeline? Oh, it's because this person who I follow for sports or covering a team liked this. And I think, by the way, its I just think it's so counterproductive and dangerous. Well, not dangerous. It's counterproductive. It's not good for your career. Because people that go, and, and I guess they can look at this on if they follow you, on, if they're on Facebook, if they look up your Facebook page, people can see your political leanings. But it's more than just your political leanings. I mean, we're not talking about just do you vote Democrat or Republican or Independent or whatever. It's who you're retweeting and who you're liking and the sort of vitriol, perhaps, of some of the commentary that is now coming in the wake of news events that really are not Democrat versus Republican, per se. They're just throwing rocks at each other on Twitter. And I can't tell you the number of people that I otherwise like and respect that I see that they have liked something and I go, oh, God. Did not want to see that, but okay. That's great. And I'm very, I am very—I try to be very judicious about that. I, I try not to. If I see something that I know is a political or socio-commentary issue, I absolutely try to make sure not to like it because I don't want anyone else to see it. And usually my likes are just bookmarks anyway. Uh, so I use the bookmarks for that if I want to save it for something later. Truth is, I why do I need to bookmark this stuff? What am I going to do? Go back and send it to somebody. Hey, I see, this person made a point about something in society. I agree with him. Anyway, the point is, Twitter's potential removal of the like button is apparently part of an effort to create a so-called healthier climate of debate on the platform, according to news reports. I'm not so sure about that. K. Marco on Barstool Sports says, and I agree with this, he says that the like feature is what I call the tool for the humble. It's how those with humility and grace acknowledge one another. The number one characteristic of a decent society, he writes, is saying please and thank you. And the like button is the ultimate thank you. Some of us, he writes, want to just say, hey, thanks, without forcing everyone on our timeline to see the compliment by way of a retweet. We want to just acknowledge the nice, kind words. We don't want to waste the time writing out thank you and moving the mouse all the way over to click the send button, but we do want to give that little heart button a tap to say, all right, I agree with that. The like button to me is a way for me to see somebody's comments and just go, boom, I see you. I see it, and, you know, it's like knuckle-dap. Got it. I like it. Good job. Gotcha. We'll see what comes of it, but uh, something tells me in this day and age, Twitter, Twitter is in for some real challenges going forward. That's, I think, pretty evident. And really, people should just play nice on that thing, for God's sake. Seriously, play nice. That will do it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. Download, subscribe, comment, and like. Tell three friends. Remember, podcasts are the future. It's like Netflix for your ears. Email me with topics and suggestions, zabe at yahoo.com. Now go fill out that application for Cleveland head coach. On The brown, the front says Browns. The back says Cavs. You get one application for 40 bucks. You get to apply to both jobs. Good luck on that. Include a resume and a business card. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. We marched each October. Now they say we were never even saved. We must be
1: very brave.